as you arrive there at Galatians chapter 2, if you wouldn't mind standing as we read God's Word together. And we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 21. All right, here, hear the Word of the Lord. But when Cephas, and remember that's Peter, so when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For he regularly ate with the Gentiles before certain men came from James. However, when they came, he withdrew and separated himself because he feared those from the circumcision party. Then the rest of the Jews joined his hypocrisy so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were deviating from the truth of the gospel... I told Cephas in front of everyone, if you who are a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how do you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? We are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. And yet because we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we ourselves have believed in Christ Jesus. This was so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law because by the works of the law no human being will be justified. But if we ourselves are also found to be sinners while seeking to be justified by Christ, is Christ then a promoter of sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild those things that I tore down, I show myself to be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Heavenly Father, I pray that you will give us grace as we think through this idea of the gospel and ethnic identity, Lord. I pray that you will give clarity and that that we will think rightly about this issue that is so closely tied to the gospel. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, we're continuing on in our series through the book of Galatians, as I'm sure you picked up. Uh, and this entire series has been entitled, Getting Back to Grace. Getting Back to Grace. And the title of this morning's sermon is The Gospel an ethnic identity, the gospel, an ethnic identity. Now, one of the interesting things about the book of Galatians is that Paul is dealing, as, as I'm sure you're aware, if you've, you've paid attention through this series, that Paul is dealing with, with a deception, uh, a deception that has crept into the churches in Galatia. And the deception being this idea that in order for the Gentiles to be Christians, and so a Gentile is anyone who is not a Jew, so in order for the Gentiles to be Christians, they had to, at least in practice, become Jews. That's very important. So for the Gentiles to become Christians, they had to, in practice, first become Jews. In other words, they had to keep the law in order to be made right with God. And what makes this so interesting is that this deception at the hands of the Judaizers is inseparably linked to the Jewish ethnic identity. It is inseparably linked to the Jewish ethnic 
identity. And what I mean by that is there were some Jews who valued their ethnic identity above all other ethnicities. They believed that because God had chosen them, which he had, but because God had chosen them, their ethnic identity was superior to that of others. So this call for the Gentiles to become practicing Jews before they could be Christians stemmed, hear me, in part, not in the whole, but it stemmed in part from a skewed understanding of the gospel and ethnic identity. So what we will see this morning is Paul address this issue, this, uh, this issue of the gospel and ethnic identity as he recounts when he had to confront the apostle Peter for falling short. But before we get into the text, let me just say this kind of as we continue in this introduction. When it comes to the gospel and ethnic identity, the church has to get it right. Hear me, when it comes to the gospel and ethnic identity, the church has to get it right. And there are two main reasons why. There are more reasons, but these are kind of the two main reasons why we as the church have to get this right. Here's the first reason. It's because we live in a racially divided society. Listen, this is not a hard one for me to prove. You can look at what took place a little over a week ago in El Paso, Texas, and see a man who was engulfed in white supremacy and white supremacy ideologies, and these led him to walk into a Walmart with the intention of killing Hispanic and Latino individuals. We live in a racially divided society. We live in a society that, despite what people claim, despite what some Christians claim, is not post-racial. We have not moved beyond racial problems. We live in a society that is still engrossed in and feeling the effects of systemic oppression and de jure segregation of minority communities. Now, some of you might like push back on that a little bit or you might need a little bit more explanation and I don't have time to get into that, but I would highly recommend to anyone who is interested in understanding a little bit more about systemic oppression that is still prevalent in our society to read a book by Richard Rothstein. And it's a book entitled The Color of Law. And it walks through some realities of segregation and redlining and housing policy that helps you understand how we got to the situation that we are in today. We live in a society that is still engrossed in and feeling the effects of systemic oppression and de jure segregation of minority communities. And hear me, we as Christians have something to say about this because the Bible is not silent in regards to these issues. We must be a voice of biblical reason in the conversation. Listen to me. The world should not be leading the conversation about ethnic identity. The church should. Because the Bible has something to say about that. But here's the second reason that the church has to get it right. The church has to get these issues of the gospel and ethnic identity right. And it's because the gospel is at stake. The gospel is at stake. Now, we'll talk about this more uh, in our second point this morning, but I just want to stress here at, in the introduction that when we are talking about ethnic and racial issues, we are addressing something that the gospel addresses. Jesus, again, has something to say about these issues. And if we get it wrong, 
we are painting a skewed picture of the gospel for the world to see the gospel is at stake. When we act like these issues are not our issues and we act like these issues are not real issues, we are stripping the gospel of its hands and its feet. We are undoing what we say about the gospel with our mouth by how we live. I'm reminded of what the Puritan writer Richard Baxter wrote when he said, Take heed lest you unsay with your lives what you speak with your tongues. The gospel is at stake. And we want to honor the gospel. We want to be a church that reflects the gospel and the message of the gospel reveals how we are made right with God and that reconciliation is then most clearly visible in our reconciliation to one another. We want to be a gospel church. Many churches today tout that they're a gospel church, but what they mean by that is we are going to model the reconciliation between us and God with no care about modeling the reconciliation between one another. But a healthy gospel church will will model not only vertical reconciliation, our reconciliation between us and God, which Jesus has brought about through his blood and the empty tomb, but also our reconciliation with one another. The fact that because of the blood of Jesus, we are brought near and God is redeeming one people unto himself through the blood of Jesus. At the end of the day, church, we have to get this right. And so as we examine our text this morning here in Galatians 2, there are a few points that we can draw out regarding the gospel and ethnic identity. So here's the first point. I have four points for you this morning. Here's the first one. Ethnic superiority is sinful. Plain and simple. Ethnic superiority is sinful. And I think that's putting it somewhat mildly. Because I believe with everything in me that any form of ethnic superiority, including the pervasive sentiment of white supremacy in our country, is demonic at its core. Ethnic superiority and the gospel are not compatible. They cannot coexist. Look at what Paul writes there in verses 11 through 14. He says, but when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For he regularly ate with the Gentiles before certain men came from James. However, when they came, he withdrew and separated himself because he feared those from the circumcision party. And then the rest of the Jews joined his hypocrisy so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were deviating from the truth of the gospel, I told Cephas in front of everyone, if you who are a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how do you compel Gentiles to live like Jews. So here's what's going on in our text. Let me unpack that a little bit. Paul is recounting when Peter came down to Antioch. Antioch is where Paul's home church was. He knew these people. He loved these people. This was his church. And Peter comes down. And Peter is hanging out with him. He's hanging out with the other individuals in the church. And yet there came an instance when Paul had to confront Peter. Because when Peter came down... He was eating with the Gentiles. That's what the text tells us. Now, what's significant about that? The Gentiles didn't keep the food laws. 
They didn't keep the Jewish laws regarding what they could and could not eat. But Peter ate with them because Peter knew, and we'll talk about this in just a moment, that it was okay to eat these things. So he's eating with the Gentiles. He's fellowshipping with the Gentiles. He's acting like a Gentile. But then a group of people come down from James. And if you remember, Peter, James, and John were kind of some of the key pillars in the early church. And so James sends some people down to check on what's going on in Antioch. These are Jewish, uh, ethnically Jewish individuals. And when they come, Peter just completely changes who he is as a person. He pulls back from the Gentiles. He doesn't eat with the Gentiles. So much so that the Bible tells us that other Jews were led astray. And God makes it a point to tell us even Barnabas was led astray. Not Barnabas. Yes, even Barnabas, the son of encouragement, was led astray by Peter's hypocrisy. And so Paul says, so what did I do? I confronted him in front of everyone. He stood condemned. Now, here are some important things to note. See, Peter knew that salvation was not by keeping the law. See, Peter was not a Judaizer. He was an apostle. He was one of the ones who was with Jesus. He knew what had taken place on the cross and through the resurrection. He had learned from Jesus. Peter knew that salvation was by grace through faith. He knew that. Now, some would argue, well, perhaps Peter was just a little confused because this most likely took place before the encounter we saw in Jerusalem that we talked about last week. Do you remember that? So what happened in Jerusalem, we saw it in Acts 15, was that the other apostles and the church as a whole openly acknowledged that Gentiles could come to faith without being circumcised because salvation was by grace. And we read even last week that declaration by Peter himself, by Peter himself, That, hey, Gentiles are grafted in by faith and not by keeping the law. And some argued, well, this encounter took place before that, so maybe Peter was just confused. Well, even if this took place before that took place in Acts 15, Peter still knew that there was nothing wrong with eating what the Gentiles ate. How do we know that? Because of what takes place in Acts 10. And in Acts chapter 10, beginning in verse 9, we read, The next day, as they were traveling and nearing the city, Peter went up to pray on the roof about noon. And he became hungry, and he wanted to eat. But while they were preparing something, he fell into a trance. So he was having a vision. It says, He saw heaven open up and an object that resembled a large sheet coming down. It was being lowered by its four corners to the earth. And in it were all the four-footed animals and reptiles of the earth and the birds of the sky. And a voice said to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Get up, Peter, kill and eat. And no, Lord, Peter said, for I have never eaten anything impure and ritually unclean. And again, a second time, the voice said to him, what God has made clean, do not call impure. This happened three times, and suddenly the object was taken up into heaven. So Peter knew that God had removed the food laws, the food requirements, that he had was basically giving a visible picture of the fact that grace trumps the law. Peter knew it was okay to eat these things, so he was not confused. So the question then becomes, why did Peter do this? Why did he withdraw from the Gentiles when the Jews came down? Why did he act like he couldn't eat the stuff? Why did he act like they were second-class citizens? And why did he lead others astray by his hypocrisy? Well, there's a key statement there at the end of verse 12. It says, because he feared those from the circumcision party. 
he feared those from the circumcision party. Now, we already know what Paul has to say about the fear of man. We saw that in chapter 1, verse 10. Paul says, if I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. But Peter feared the Jews. He feared what they would think. He feared their perception of him may change. And ultimately, hear me, Peter cared more about appeasing those from his ethnic background than he did about standing for the truth of the gospel. He cared more about appeasing those from his ethnic background than he did about standing for the truth of the gospel. He thought the opinion of this group of people mattered more. And he elevated the Jews above the Gentiles and above the gospel. And even more than that, as an apostle, his sin led others astray. Again, then the rest of the Jews joined his hypocrisy so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. It wasn't even that he merely pulled away from them. But we learn in verse 14 that he was trying to compel the Gentiles to act like Jews. And again, for Peter, it was not because he believed that's how they would be saved. He knew that's not how they would be saved. It was because in that moment he believed the Jews were superior. He believed that the Jews were ethnically superior to the Gentiles. This is ethnic superiority. This is sin. And just look at Paul's words. He says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Now we have a term in our day and age for what Peter was doing. It's cultural colonization, meaning that Peter knew they could be saved by faith. He knew it was by grace alone, but because he valued his culture so much, he elevated it to a place where it shouldn't have been so much so that he was compelling Gentiles to be like his people. Now I want to be clear about this. The church has mastered cultural colonization. The church in America has mastered cultural colonization. You see, ethnic superiority, and I want you to listen very carefully, ethnic superiority does not only manifest itself in white supremacists killing innocent people. Ethnic superiority plays itself out in churches all across this country every Sunday. Though it may not ever be said, Though it might not ever be articulated, there is in many churches and in many people's understandings, specifically in our country, that when it comes to church, what's white is right. How the white church does church is how you should do church. There is that misguided understanding among many in Christian circles in our country today. They might not ever voice it. They would deny it vehemently. But in the day-in, day-out practices of how their church operates, there is an unspoken rule that white is right. Again, meaning that how the white church does it is the right way to do it. And everything else is less than. You know where I see this thing play itself out most? One of the great privileges that I've had. I'm so thankful for New Breach. I'm thankful for who we are and what God is building up here. Uh, and we're doing something that's hard to do. We really are. We're trying to say that we want to model both vertical and horizontal reconciliation. It can be tough at times, amen? 
But that has given me the opportunity to go and to share with some other pastors and some other individuals who are trying to speak that out. And what I have noticed by a lot, from a lot of churches is that they say they want ethnic diversity in their churches, but what they really mean by that is that they want the skin color without the culture. They want black and brown bodies in their pews, but they don't want to change how they do church because how they do church is right. And that is cultural colonization. Do you know where I first realized that this sentiment of white is right is really pervasive in, in, in the American Christian experience? It's when I went to seminary. Now, hear me, I love my seminary, I'm thankful for it. They gave me a degree, they even helped pay for some of it. Thankful for that. But it wasn't until my finer, final year at seminary, my final year of my master's program, when I had a professor who you all have met who asked us to consider all the books that we'd ever been assigned to read in our seminary education. And he asked us how many of those books were written by minorities or by women. And as I thought through it, I realized that not one book in my seminary education for all the years that I was there was ever by a minority individual or a woman until his class. He made it a point to only allow us to read minority theologians, women scholars, now, I was fortunate enough that I had been exposed to a lot of minority authors and women writers, so a lot of my research, I used those individuals, but it was kind of a sobering thought to realize that nowhere in my seminary education I'd ever been assigned a minority author. And it got me thinking. So the question becomes, how do we combat this? How do we combat the real reality of cultural colonization that takes place in our country and in our churches? I think the answer is simple on paper, yet hard to implement. We have to learn what it looks like to genuinely celebrate diversity in the body of Christ. We have to learn what it looks like to genuinely celebrate diversity in the body of Christ. Because we have to remember that we are called to unity and not uniformity. We are called to be one, but we come as one from diverse backgrounds, diverse stories, diverse cultures. We are called to unity, but not uniformity. We'll talk more about that here in a moment. So the first point that Paul addresses the fact that ethnic superiority is sinful, that what Peter was doing was sinful to its core as he elevated the ethnic Jewish reality above that of the Gentiles. And ethnic superiority in any form is sinful. But here's the second point this morning, the second thing that I want you to see. Thinking correctly about ethnic identity is a gospel issue. Thinking correctly about ethnic identity is a gospel issue. Look specifically at what Paul says in verse 14. After he recounts what had taken place, he recounts what Peter had done. And he said, but when I saw they were, notice this, deviating from the truth of the gospel. I told Cephas in front of everyone, if you are a Jew, if you who are a Jew live like Gentiles and not like a Jew, how can you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? 
Paul sees Peter's offense. Hear me clearly. Paul sees Peter's offense of ethnic superiority as an offense against the gospel. And listen, this is something the church has to get right because the gospel is at stake. Consider what we what we are to reflect on as evidenced by Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 11, because Paul writes this in Ephesians 2, So then remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. And at that time you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel, but foreigners to the covenants of promise and without hope and without God in the world. But listen to this. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace who has made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility in his flesh. He made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two resulting in peace. And he did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put hostility to death. So we have to understand there are some weighty things in this passage that speak to the reality that, that when we think about ethnic identity, we are thinking about a gospel issue. First thing that we notice is that we are brought near by the blood of Christ. The blood of Jesus brings us near to God and near to one another. Through Christ's work on the cross, there is both vertical reconciliation and horizontal reconciliation, thus remedying that which was destroyed in Genesis 3 and 4. But the second thing in that passage in Ephesians 2 is that, that, that we can't miss is that God has made both groups one. Later on, he says he is creating one new man from the two. And what Paul is identifying here in Ephesians 2 is that what God did in the gospel, through the gospel, is he didn't elevate ethnic Israel. He didn't elevate one ethnicity over another. But what he did is he took the two and made them one, and he is redeeming one new man unto himself. So we can't miss... Thirdly, that we are reconciled to God as one body. Now, this is a mind-blowing concept, especially for us in America with our rugged individualism that think that God's aim is to save each one of us as individuals. But what we read here in Ephesians 2 is that he did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. God is redeeming one church, one bride, one people united under the banner of Christ and where hostility has been he has killed it in light of the death and resurrection of Jesus. The gospel brings ethnically diverse people together as one, and God is redeeming one new person unto himself, the church. The church. There is no room for ethnic superiority in that. Hear me, there is no room for white supremacy in that. God is redeeming one person, his bride to himself, and it is made up of a beautiful collage of different skin tones and different cultures and different languages and different backgrounds, and it is beautiful. And when we refuse to address the issue of ethnic superiority, we are refusing to speak to something that is the complete antithesis of the gospel. We have to understand 
how people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation see and interact with one another in light of the gospel. And it is a gospel issue. Now hear me, it is not the message of the gospel, but it is a gospel issue. And what I mean by that is the message of the gospel is this, that we have sinned and rebelled against God. We have, we have tried to steal his glory. We have robbed him of what is rightly due his. We have tried to play God on our own by how we have lived our lives. We've, in essence, said we don't need you, God. We don't want you, God. And our life is better without you, God. And we have sinned. We have rebelled. And God, the almighty, holy, righteous, and just creator of the universe, ought to destroy us because of our sin. And yet, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. So rather than kill us, God, God planned to redeem us. He sought us out. He called us by name. He has saved us through Jesus because Jesus lived the perfect life. He never sinned. He never tried to rob God of his glory. He never tried to rob God the Father of, the, of his glory, even though he was God the Son. And he came and he lived a perfect life and he deserved no death and no judgment and yet he willingly died in our place. He died for us. And three days later God raised him from the dead and he was crucified for our transgressions and he was raised for our justification. And we can come to God through faith and repentance and find hope and salvation. That is the message of the gospel. But what that truth demands of us is that we see one another in appropriately in light of who Jesus is and what he has done and what he has called us to. I love how Tony Evans once said it. I've shared this quote with you before, but, but Tony Evans once said that the message of the gospel gets us to heaven, but the scope of the gospel brings heaven to earth. And so when we are dealing with issues of ethnic superiority and ethnic identity and we are thinking rightly based on the Bible about these things, we are, as best as we can, attempting to bring heaven to earth. It's not what gets us to heaven, but it's how we live in light of the fact that we're going there. And the scary thing is, is that there are churches who are on complete opposite sides of the pendulum on this. There are some churches that will argue, well, we don't need to deal with, with racism in our country. We don't need to deal with ideas of ethnic superiority. All we have to do is just make sure we share the message of the gospel. And people will figure that out on their own. And then you have some on the other side who says it doesn't matter if we share the gospel with them because we've got to deal with this fire blazing right in front of us. And so we're going to put all of our efforts into helping the world see rightly about this idea of race and ethnicity. And we're going to build our churches around that and we're going to push the gospel to the side for now and maybe we'll get to it later. And both of those are horrible because we want them both. We want to preach the gospel believing that the gospel is the only thing that reconciles us to God. But the scope of the gospel is the only thing that will make us right with one another. And so we fight these false ideas of ethnic supremacy because the gospel calls us to walk in light of the truth that we have. Here's our third point this morning. The gospel does not eliminate our ethnic identities. Please hear me say that the gospel does not eliminate our ethnic identities. 
Look at verses 15 and 16. Paul says, we are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Now, he's not insulting them there, that, that phrase Gentile sinners. Your Bible might have them in quotes there is because that's a term that's used in the law regarding the legal standing of the Gentiles in light of the Mosaic law. So Paul's just referencing back to that. He understands that Jews are sinners too. But he's using that legal term and he says, we are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. And yet, because we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we ourselves have believed in Christ Jesus. This was so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. And so Paul acknowledges there at the front end that we are Jews. We are. He does not deny his ethnic reality. He does not deny where he has come from. He says we are Jews and we are not Gentiles. Paul identifies that they do indeed have different ethnic realities, that some are Jews, some are Gentiles. He's not denying that. There's nothing wrong with that. But what Paul is saying is that at the foot of the cross, they are all equal. That salvation comes by faith, not by the law, and not through ethnicity. Paul goes on and says that we know that is true because even we had to believe in Jesus Christ. He's saying we're all justified by faith. Now, this is an important point to remember, that the gospel does not eliminate our ethnic identity because some will argue wrongly that what Paul says later on in Galatians 3.28 eliminates ethnic realities. When Paul says there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. And I want to be explicitly clear because so many people have misquoted that verse. saying We don't need to think about ethnic realities because the Bible says that if we're in Jesus, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's not male nor female. There's not slave nor free. Listen to me. Paul is not diminishing in that statement in Galatians 3.8, and we'll talk about it when we get there. He is not diminishing ethnic realities. Rather, as we will see, he's elevating the gospel over them. Because what he's not saying is, oh, you're a Christian now? You're no longer a female. We know that's not true. You're no longer a male. We know that's not true because the Bible tells us how to live as male and female as Christians. It identifies us as those two things. It says there's a difference between how you should live here. And so we can't say, well, when he says there's no Jew or Greek, he's saying that now we ignore ethnic realities. We know that that's not what he's talking about. It doesn't make sense in the context of this book. It doesn't even make sense in the context of the verses around it. Because in Galatians 3, what Paul is talking about, the fact that the promises of God and the inheritance that God is giving is granted for all who come by faith. He's elevating the gospel. He's not diminishing ethnic realities. But we also know that the gospel does not eliminate our ethnic identities because of what we see in Revelation 7. Revelation 7, John has a vision. He says, after this, I looked and there was a vast multitude from every nation, every tribe, every people and every language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the lamb. And they were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the lamb. Let me be clear. The gospel is colorblind, but God is not. 
And our God delights in the unity of his people, but he does not demand uniformity. And what we see in Revelation 7 is a beautiful picture of ethnic diversity in the kingdom of God. You will retain your ethnic identity in glory because God delights in it. How do you know that, Michael? Because I saw people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Well, they were all wearing the same thing. They were all singing the same song. So what did he see? He saw different skin tones. And God delights in that. The gospel does not eliminate your ethnic identity. And it is actually through our unity in the midst of our diversity that we paint a stronger picture of the gospel. Consider Jesus' very prayer in John 17, verses 21 and 22. He says, I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word. May they all be one. Very important phrase here. As you, Father, are in me and I am in you. And may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. Jesus says we want them to be one like you and I are one, Father. And how are Jesus and the Father one? <laughs> it's unity in the midst of diversity. They are united, but they are different members of the Godhead. And, and we could go into that, and that's another sermon for another day. But he's calling us to Trinitarian unity. And one of the pictures we see in the unity in the Trinity is unity in the midst of diversity. And Jesus says that when we find that, we are proclaiming to the world that we believe that God has sent Jesus. That is a powerful statement. That we are making, we are painting a gospel picture when we are unified in the midst of diversity. But again, God, God calls for unity and not uniformity. Lord knows the world doesn't need two Michael Matalas. You could probably say that about yourself. We're not called to all be the same. The cause to unity in the midst of diversity. There is beauty in diversity. But we have to be careful with our ethnic identity. Hear me. We have to be careful with our ethnic identity and make sure that not a one of us elevates it too high to a place that it should not be. Because here's our fourth and final point this morning. Though the gospel does not remove your ethnic identity, here's the, the final point this morning. The gospel is superior to our ethnic identities. The gospel is superior to our ethnic identities. Look at verses 17 through 21. Paul says, but if we ourselves are also found to be sinners while seeking to be justified by Christ, is Christ then a promoter of sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild those things that I tore down, I show myself to be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. So Paul begins and he addresses Peter's fear of the Jews and his elevation of his ethnic identity and his elevation of the law over the gospel. And he says, but if we ourselves are also found to be sinners while seeking to be justified by Christ, is Christ then a promoter of sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild those things that I tore down, I show myself to be a lawbreaker. Basically, Paul says, listen, Peter, you ate with them. 
you ate with them because God told you it was okay to eat with them. And so if you are calling them sinners for not keeping the law, but God told you that you could do it, then is God promoting sin? And Paul says, absolutely not. He's showing him how foolish his logic is. He is calling Peter, he's calling him out for reverting back to the customs of his ethnic identity, though he knows that Gentiles won't be saved by him. And he's saying that the gospel is greater than all of that. The gospel is greater than all of that. He goes on and says, for through him, or sorry, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. In other words, he's saying righteousness does not come through the law. Righteousness does not come from our ethnic identities. Righteousness comes through Christ. And Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but it's Christ who lives in me. It's a verse we all know. And what Paul is doing is he is saying that though he is a Jew and though Peter is a Jew and though they are ethnically different from the Gentiles, he is saying first and foremost that he identifies himself as one who has been buried with Christ and raised with Christ. We don't lose our ethnic identities, but the gospel is always superior. We are children of God first. We are washed in the blood first. We are heirs and co-heirs first. Paul is, is communicating that his supreme identity is not found in his ethnicity, but it is found in Christ's work on the cross. We can never forget that our ethnic identities matter, but we can never forget that the gospel matters more. Listen, you know, one of the things, when New Breed started, when Pastor TC and I kind of came together, I'm saying when New Breed started as us merging together, one of the things that, that TC and I sat down and we talked about was the fact that we really wanted to see a church that reflected the kingdom of God as best as we could in our context. I mean, what we meant by that was we don't want to just have a white church. We don't want to just have a black church because the kingdom's bigger than that. And so we set out through a lot of prayer and a lot of thought and a lot of planning to try to bring that to a reality where we were, we were a, a church made up of different ethnicities and different cultures and different backgrounds. And we were, we're still fighting to, to represent those in how we do worship on Sunday. I, I think the Lord has given us grace to move in that direction. And we are, we are, not, we are not complacent. We still want to press on into that because we believe there is beauty in different backgrounds, different cultures represented in how we worship God. And it is okay to recognize that kind of as a whole, different cultures worship God in different ways. And there's reasons behind that. For example... The reason that most white churches predominantly focus on more somber, reflective worship has its roots in the Reformation. Because for the longest time, we acted like sin didn't matter. And then by the grace of God, some men started faithfully fighting for the fact that sin really does matter. And we got to take this thing seriously. And so the church started to grow and develop this, this reality of, of reflective worship that recognizes how great our God is, but how sinful we are. And it took on more of a somber, reflective tone. And there's nothing wrong with that. 
But then we also have to understand why, why the, the traditional African-American church tends to worship even musically with a sense of more higher praise. And it's beautiful when you understand it. It's because one of the things that we saw is that the birth of the African-American church tradition in America came during a time of slavery. And what our African-American brothers and sisters were declaring through their high praise and high worship and spirit is that no matter what our masters do to us, they cannot take away the joy we have in our God. And so it developed into a higher praise and a higher sense of worship, and it is beautiful, and there is nothing wrong with that. And so we want to be a church that incorporates all of that because we think it's beautiful and God delights in it. But when, when we set out to do that, if Pastor T.C. was here, he'd tell you we had to have some real hard conversations with people along the way. And one of the things that him and I found ourselves saying more than anything to a lot of individuals was that, listen, if you as a white individual identify more with a lost white individual than you do with your African-American brothers or sisters in Christ, you're probably in sin. And we had to look at some of our African-American brothers and sisters and say, listen, if you as an African-American identify more with a lost African-American than you do with your white brothers and sisters in Christ, you are probably in sin. And the reason we had to say that was because we believe that the gospel trumps ethnicity. It is bigger than ethnicity. It doesn't mean our ethnicity doesn't matter, but our fundamental identity, the pinnacle of who we are, is found in the blood of Jesus. We are washed in the blood. We are red first. And we had hard conversations about that, but we believe that the gospel is superior, but we hold at the same time that our ethnicities matter. And our God is big enough to accommodate both of those things. So let me bring this thing to a, a close here, church. I want you to listen to me, kind of my final plea here. When it comes to the gospel and ethnic identity, We've only scratched the surface of what the Bible has to say about it this morning, and it'll come up again in the book of Galatians. But I want you to hear me. We have to get this right. We have to get this right. The world needs to see a living, breathing example of what it looks like to be reconciled, of what it looks like to be reconciled to God as an individual and what it looks like to be reconciled to one another, not just reconciled with people who look like us and act like us and have the same stories as us but to say that the gospel has brought us near to one another, that we are being made into one body, which God is redeeming to himself. We are the bride of Christ, and we recognize the beauty of diversity, yet we fight for unity in the midst of it. And if we're going to fight for unity, it means that some of us are going to have to sacrifice a lot. It means that all of us are going to have to sacrifice along the way. That we'll do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than ourselves. But it is a fight worth fighting because the gospel of Jesus Christ is at stake. And I don't know about you, but my aim in this life is to make much of the gospel that has saved my soul.